Pastor Megan, please come on up. Sundays like this, some of you love. Sundays like this, some of you like, ah. Oh. This month is domestic awareness. Domestic violence, violence. awareness. Awareness, yes. It's important to get the awareness in there because we don't want anybody to think we're <laughs> Yo, promoting yes. domestic violence. Yes. Yeah. Um, Pastor Megan is mom to Lucas. Okay? Yep. And uh, Pastor Megan is a, a friend. We've been friends for a while. She's a covenant pastor. And um, her and her husband uh, took a call from Arizona, Tucson, Arizona, five mm-hmm. years ago to Naperville, Illinois to mm-hmm. pastor Naperville Covenant Church. And um, she currently is the director of women's ministries for the Evangelical Covenant Church, our denomination. Um, today, uh, we will take a, a brief pause and break from our Ten Commandments sermon series and talk about the issue of domestic violence. And I invited her here today because this is an incredibly important topic mm-hmm. that has been in the media a ton lately. And uh, churches sometimes don't do the best job of wrestling dealing with it. Why do you think that is? Hard to talk about. And it brings so many people have shame around the subject. Yeah. Or they've been told not to talk about it. Or they've been told uh, this is forget about it, put it aside. We're going to see that in the scriptures today. Yep. And... Um, but we are the very people who should be dealing with this issue. Amen. Amen. Why is it important for the church, you think, in terms of our witness for the larger culture, larger community? Well, we have the source of healing. Uh, we have the source because of our relationship and our centeredness on Jesus Christ. There are ways to heal, and there are plenty of opportunities, but a person who knows Jesus has a fast and direct road to healing um, because of him. Also, when you talk about the mission of this church planted here in the community, when you say to this community, we get it that domestic violence is all around us in our neighborhood yeah. here, and this is a safe place where it will not be tolerated, it will be spoken of openly, and where we will bring what is needed yeah. to minister and to serve, then you say something very powerful to the community of Logan. Amen. We give a warm hell. welcome to Pastor Megan Gibbons. <laughs> Thank you so much, uh, Peter. And I'm looking at the clock there, and I would love it if you would give me a stopping time. <laughs> yeah, okay, they're not, they're not so sure about that. So uh, it is a real privilege to be here, and we do go back a ways. Peter, I'm so grateful. And I'm grateful because Peter has been the pastor not only to our son Lucas and his beautiful wife Anna, but also to all four of our children at different points in different seasons. Our paths have crossed in many ways. Pastor Michael, it's great to see you as well. So thrilled to be here with you and uh, so glad to be at the NewCom today. This church has ministered to us and is a vital part of who we are as the Evangelical Covenant Church. And if you hear that and you're not so sure who you're talking about, well, that's, that's us, that's we, that's your peeps. We're the ECC, we're the Covenant, and that's who we are. And it's so important to us that you are a part of the covenant. And so I'm grateful to be here with you today. You may or may not have seen that the title of my talk is The NFL, Heart Cakes and Hidden Heartaches. And I'll try to touch on all three of those as we work our way through the message today. I do have to say, I'm not sure that I have ever begun a message with a word of thanks to the uh, National Football League. 
uh, this is a new experience for me, but today I really do want to express my gratitude because all this brouhaha that so many different players have brought and the recent dust-up of domestic violence has thrust this issue into our, for into our minds and into the forefront of the news community so that we can't ignore it anymore. And so for this, I am thankful. And I am wearing purple, the color. I had been told you guys were going to get your purple on just a little bit, so I feel kind of funny here because it's not necessarily something I would always wear. But this is my domestic violence garb, so I want you to remember that when you see the purple ribbons people are wearing, it's a desire to raise awareness about domestic violence. I thank you all for talking about this difficult issue today. And we don't have to look very far in the news to see that with that one brutal slug in the face of his fiancée, Janae Palmer, Ray Rice riveted the attention of a nation, and more importantly, the attention of a billion-dollar sports megaplex on an issue that had been sorely ignored, but an issue that some of us have been plugging away on for quite some time. This unfortunate moment in the NFL gives us opportunity to pause and to say, well, what about domestic violence? What about it? It's a problem that has been impacting women and children and men, and families, and churches, and our society, frankly, since the beginning of time. Domestic violence has a multi-billion dollar impact on our economy across the board. One human rights group estimates that just here in the United States, forget the rest of the world where percentages are even worse, that here in the United States nearly 5.6 million days of productivity are lost each year due to domestic violence. That alone is staggering, isn't it? So it would be really great if this very visible abuse in the NFL led to a change of our attitudes here in America and in sports, especially in football. In fact, if you think about it, a lot of social change has come through sport, hasn't it? Whether we think of Jackie Robinson and the groundbreaking steps that he took, the abuse that he was subjected to, and yet the persistence and the awareness that he brought. And I'm not sure how you feel about all the pink, pink, pink that we have this month as well, but we have to thank professional football for raising some awareness about breast cancer as well. And I don't know quite how to feel when I see those guys out there on the, play, on the playing field with their pink cleats and their pink gloves and their pink goalposts and everything else. But social change can come in all kinds of crazy ways. These recent high-profile cases involving Ray and Janae, Adrian Peterson, and our own Brandon Marshall right here in the Chicago Bears, they have brought a great deal of attention to this much-needed issue. And they might even raise some questions for us. Why would Janae marry Ray after she, after she was abused so badly? Why does any abused person stay with their abuser? Everyone asks that question, and there's been a ton written about that in the last few weeks. And some of you may be going, well, wait a minute. What is abuse anyway? I want to invite you to watch this short video that explains clearly what abuse is, and it tells you about one way that we in the Evangelical Covenant Church are addressing it. Get that? One in four women, one in six men. Now, we could have everyone stand up here 
and have uh, everyone else sit down, but have every, every fourth woman remain standing and every sixth man remain standing. We would never do that, but if we did, there would be a lot of people in this room. And so we want to acknowledge this is a difficult issue to talk about because each of us is in a different place with our journey uh, of healing from abuse or understanding it or even acknowledging it perhaps that it happened. If you have grown up in an abusive home, what you grew up with you believe is normative. That's just one of the simple principles of life, that what you saw as you were raised is normative. And if you think abuse is normal, you have to get out there and live a couple of decades before you even realize that you are damaged and wounded. And so today, it is my prayer that perhaps some people will begin a journey of healing. Perhaps some will begin a decision to help others heal. And perhaps some will just take a few steps further down the road of healing. Abuse is all about power and control. You heard that in the video. If you remember nothing else about this message today, please remember those two words, power and control. Abuse is not about having a bad day. It is not a problem that can be fixed by marriage counseling, though many people think it can. It's not a matter of lack of submission in a relationship, any kind of a relationship. Abuse is a systematic pattern of a behavior that seeks to dominate and control its victim in a variety of ways. Some of the ways are overt, like physical assault, the things that we think of, what we saw Ray doing to Janae in the elevator there, punching, hitting, pushing, shoving. Then there's all kinds of sexual abuse which can occur, and it can occur among married partners. Please know that. Any form of unwanted, forced sexual activity, including suggestive talk, innuendo, fondling, unwanted touch, sexual play, and even stalking. There is verbal abuse, emotional abuse, psychological abuse, financial abuse, and sadly, spiritual abuse. In all of these, the abuser seeks to control behavior, to limit accessibility for the victim, are you getting the picture? Hard to look at, isn't it? And we see the results of domestic violence everywhere through its impact on victims. See, victims, when they're abused and they're put down and they're told how stupid they are and how worthless they are, it can be pretty easy to come to believe it and to begin to think, yeah, I really am not very good. And the whole ability to trust degenerates. Victims can start to believe the lies that are being perpetrated, that they are, in fact, useless, worthless, unclean, unloved, bad, or incapable. Domestic violence or intimate partner violence, as you may hear it referred to in some situations, along with childhood sexual abuse, and sadly now we're talking about campus sexual assault as well, although it's been happening forever also, has an utterly destructive impact on its victims. It destroys their sense of worth and value. It can lead to depression, withdrawal and isolation, low self-esteem, emotional instability, sleep disturbance, physical pain without cause, suicidal ideation, suicidal attempts or thoughts, extreme dependence, ironically, on the abuser, underachievement, inability to trust, feeling trapped and alone, substance abuse, the list goes on and on. Why should we be talking about it? I think you're getting the picture. 
victims have a hard time living a normal life, frankly, depending on how severe the abuse has been. This is why we need to be talking about it in the church. Because while abuse breaks things and destroys things, God is a God who is always creating and recreating and renewing. God is a God who builds up, who makes, who does good. God's a healing, healing God. In a relationship with Jesus Christ, we find, and frankly, I have found, healing and strength and perspective and light and life and hope. We have all those things for victims of abuse. You have those things for victims of abuse. And sadly, when it comes to the word of God, there are some real abuses as well. There are many passages that have been misused to justify abuse. Here's one I bet you've heard sometime. Malachi 2.16, I, the Lord, hate divorce. Well, it's true. But when you go to Malachi and you read the context, this is a passage about how desperately God desires that every human live a vital and a vibrant and a flourishing life. This is not about don't divorce or you're going straight to hell in a handbasket. It's about we should be flourishing. We should be living lives. God is actually calling out those people who have behaved treacherously toward their wives. And yet this verse alone has led to thousands of women remaining in dangerous, abusive relationships. When God would be saying to them, get out of there, get to safety. God desires that we be in healthy thriving relationships with each other and with him. And even that simple and well-known verse from Ephesians 5, wives, submit to your husbands. We know that one gets abused too. Everybody loves to quote this one. But people who tend to quote it when we're talking about abuse or talking about submission, they tend to leave out the verse that directly precedes it. Submit to one another out of your love for Christ. Scott and I put this into our wedding vows 39 years ago last month. I know, that makes us kind of cool for back then, doesn't it? We knew that going forward, our relationship would have to be one of mutual submission, one of agreement and accord, of traveling a road together, that we didn't need an ultimate boss to figure things out, that our relationship with God in Jesus Christ was enough. Submit to one another. Now, I know, Pastor Peter, you are preaching from the Ten Commandments right now. And I appreciated that you posted the other day this idea that the commandments are much more about who we are and who we need to be than God who wants to prohibit our fun, rob us of our joy and delight, who wants to be a giant cosmic killjoy. That's what the commandments are about. The commandments are about how you can flourish and live and really enjoy everything God has done for you. His laws are to bless us. And to provide us with a healthy and a right way of living. They're much more about who we are. And so, when we come to this, it's really essential that we understand the same concept in our approach to how we deal with violence and abuse. And truthfully, I would say that of the 37 years that my husband and I have been in ministry, serving churches all over uh, the U.S., it's often been that one person in a congregation who has the unhealed damage, who's been abused and never really confronted it. That's often been the person who's kind of in there stirring the pot, troubling things, 
talking about so-and-so or this and that and just keeping everything going. In a church, in a family, or any kind of a system, this is a problem. So I say to you today again, kudos, Newcom, for being willing to talk about this issue. Let's together look it squarely in the eyes. Let's stare it down. Let's say, in this community, abuse is not permitted. In this community, we'll be safe. We'll be healing. We'll talk about the hard stuff. So I want now to take you to a story from Scripture. I want to see if we can do this pretty quickly. But I, I think it's important to acknowledge that there's some really horrid stories of abuse in Scripture. And one of the worst is found in 2 Samuel 13. And if you look it up in your Bible, which I would encourage you to do, you'll see the heading there is a heading that we, in some churches we wouldn't even want to utter. The Rape of Tamar. The Rape of Tamar. Now you may or may not be familiar with this story. Probably not the place you go when you're asked to lead devotions at your committee meeting, hopefully. But it's there. It's in the Bible. We need to look at it. This is a powerful and tragic story of a broken family, a broken father, a broken victim, and a broken trust. Abuse, plain old, breaks things. It breaks things. Set it up for you just a little bit. The story is set in the royal family of King David. And it features several family members who are in this place of intrigue. They get caught in a tragic experience of abuse that leads to huge brokenness. And I want to remind you, we have two characters whose names start with A. One is Amnon. He's a half-brother to Tamar, our victim. And the other is Absalom. He's a full brother to Tamar, our victim. Amnon and Absalom both have David as a father, and they have different mothers. Tamar has the same mother as Absalom, her full brother. One other note. I know that in a room this big, there are definitely women who have experienced the tragedy of rape. So I just want, I think it's important to acknowledge that wherever you are in your journey of healing, it is not our desire that today be an awful, painful experience for you, but rather one where you acknowledge that you are, you are a beloved person in the eyes of Jesus Christ and that no one, no one is glad that this happened to you. And so if anything becomes too intense, I think we can agree together. You need to leave. You should leave. I hope that you can stay. reading from the New Living. Now David's son Absalom had a beautiful sister named Tamar, and Amnon, her half-brother, fell desperately in love with her. Amnon became so obsessed with Tamar that he became ill. She was a virgin, and Amnon thought he could never have her. Ah, but Amnon had a very crafty friend, actually his cousin, Jonadab. He was the son of David's brother, Shemaiah. One day, Jonadab said to Amnon, What's the trouble, cousin? Why should a son of the king look so dejected morning after morning? So Amnon told him, oh, I'm in love with my sister Tamar. My, well, actually, he says, I am in love with Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. He can't even name her for who she is. Well, Jonadab says, 
I'll take care of you. Go back to bed. Pretend you are ill. When your father comes to see you, ask him to let Tamar come and prepare some food for you. Tell him you'll feel so much better if she prepares it for you as you watch and if she feeds you with her own hands. And so Amnon lay down and pretended to be sick. And when the king came to see him, Amnon asked, Please, let my sister come and cook my favorite dish as I watch. Then I can eat it from her own hands. And so David agreed and sent Tamar to Amnon's house to prepare some food for him. When Tamar arrived at Amnon's house, she went to the place where he was lying down so he could watch her mix the dough. Then she baked his favorite dish for him. But when she set the serving tray before him, he refused to eat. Everyone get out of here. Amnon told the servants. And so they all left. Then he said to Tamar, Now bring the food to my bedroom and feed it to me there. So Tamar took his favorite dish to him. But as she was feeding him, he grabbed her and demanded, Come to bed with me, my darling sister. No, my brother, she cried. Don't be foolish. Don't do this to me. Such wicked things aren't done in Israel. Where could I ever go in my shame? And you would be called the greatest fool in all of Israel. Please just speak to the king about it. He will let you marry me. But Amnon would not listen to her. And since he was stronger than she was, he raped her. Then suddenly Amnon's love turned to hate and he hated her even more than he had loved her. Get out of here, he snarled at her. No, no, cried Tamar. Sending me away now is worse than what you've already done to me. But Amnon would not listen to her. He shouted for his servant and demanded, throw this woman out and lock the door behind her. So the servant put her out, locked the door behind her. She was wearing a long, beautiful robe, as was the custom in those days for the king's virgin daughters. But now Tamar tore her beautiful robe and put ashes on her head, and with her face in her hands, she went away crying. Her brother Absalom saw her and asked, Is it true that Amnon has been with you? Well, my sister. Keep quiet for now, since he's your brother. Don't you worry about it. So Tamar lived as a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. An even more tragic footnote. When King David heard what had happened, he was very angry. And though Absalom never spoke to Amnon about this, he hated Amnon deeply because of what he had done to his sister. David also did nothing. What did you hear in this story? Obsession, lust, evil, deception, betrayal, yes. All this and more. This story enables us to draw back the curtains on a really sick family, a really sick system, if you will, that is damaged and malfunctioning because we are all a part of a family or a system of some kind. We need to take a look. So I'm going to go back through the story, pick some things out, and I'm just going to draw some points out of the story that I think are important for us to understand, okay? So go there with me. 
Starts with Amnon wanting what he can't have. With Tamar being a young, pure woman in that royal household, there's no way that anyone can have access to her or court her even without David's permission. Verse 2 says, Amnon thought he could never have her, as if a person is something to be possessed. The NIV reads, she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible for him to do anything to her. There is only one thing Amnon wants to do to her, and it's all about taking, not giving. Giving is God's intent for sexual intercourse. Taking is what the abuser is up to. Taking is Amnon's plan. From this we draw our first point that abuse is all about the abuser and his or her selfish obsession to control and overpower a victim. Abusers rarely take responsibility for their actions and Amnon is a poster child for that. Remember that abuse is a pattern of power and control. And even though the passage says Amnon was in love, he was in lust, not in love. Returning to the story, Amnon lets his obsessive thoughts simply carry him away. How much did this guy have to be thinking about his half-sister to get this obsessed, to be physically ill? And then unfortunately, in walks Jonadab, who is an evil guy. When the scripture uses that word crafty, that's the same word that's used for the serpent in the garden. He's up to no good. Jonadab dreams up a plan of deception and entrapment, and Amnon buys it. From this we draw our second point. Abuse uses deceit, deception, and falsehood to ensnare its victims. In many cases, in most cases, victims know their abuser. Often it's a family member. They are deceived, and they are lied to. And abuse cannot so survive where the light and truth of Jesus Christ are shining. It just doesn't work. Because when you bring light to darkness, darkness has to banish. Is that not true? We know that, don't we, church? It needs darkness to thrive. And so Jonadab is all about the darkness, and he's all about hatching this dark, dark scheme. What kind of a friend is he? A terrible one. He should be saying, knock it off, Amnon. Get a life. Let's go harness the horses and take a few laps in our chariots. I don't know what he could say to him. He should be saying anything except for hatching this horrible scheme. Nobody in the household is really dialed into what's going on. They're all asleep at the wheel. No one's minding the store. Tamar becomes the victim. So we return to our story, and King David comes in to check his son, who's said to be ill. The king would actually probably always do that. But David... He's asleep at the wheel, and Amnon easily pulls him into the plot. The scripture says, so David agreed to the whole thing. I don't know about you, but I feel outrage welling up inside of me when I read those words. Why is he not seeing the problem with this arrangement? And from this, I want to draw the principle that abuse needs people to step up and speak the truth in the crucial moments. We need to be the ones who shine the light, who boldly speak out, even when it's difficult, even when our own stuff is getting in the way. Let me ask here, those of you who know your Bible, 
Did any of you put together the timing and the sequence of this story? This story really follows directly on the heels of David's horrible sin with Bathsheba, Bathsheba and her wonderful, faithful husband, Uriah. Why would David be looking the other way at Amnon's sin? Because he's so overwhelmed with his own stuff. He can't get past his own stuff to do the right thing for his daughter. He is overwhelmed with his own guilt and his own sin. And I think this is why those of us who know and love Jesus Christ always need to be keeping short accounts with God. We always need to be bringing our lives before him and saying, what is here, Lord? Show me my sin. Have you ever dared to pray that prayer? If you haven't, I suggest you do it. It's one God usually answers, show me my sin. So sorry that David did not pray that. Eventually, David did. We have Psalm 51 and the wonderful record of his sorrow. Maybe he's already prayed that. Maybe he's already done that work, but he still has it welling inside of him. I don't know the timing. One other interpretive comment, because in my title, I have heart cakes, and some of you may be going, why are heart cakes in the title of this message? Well, this has to do with the interpretation. So this food that... Tamar is coming to make for Amnon. It's a difficult term in Hebrew to translate. And so some people call it uh, heart-shaped cakes. Some people call it dumplings. There's a variety of ways this can be translated. But many scholars really believe that this is supposed to be food that is known in that culture to give vitality, to give life. And in many settings, it actually has kind of erotic overtones. If that is true... It makes David's complicity even more heinous and ugly, doesn't it? Heart cakes may seem innocent enough, but this simple, simple menu choice led to horrid devastation for a precious woman of God. And so we go back to the story, and Amnon tries to innocently entice his sister. Come to bed with me, my darling sister. And from this, I want you to know that many, many victims, uh, when it comes to incest and abuse, many abusers groom their victims. You know what I mean by groom? They just gradually wear them down. They gradually uh, take uh, and talk to them about things so that what seems absolutely horrid and unacceptable sort of becomes, well, maybe that's not so bad at all. And then maybe after a while, it's like all of a sudden you find yourself doing something you never dreamt would happen. Amnon says, Come and lie with me. He's trying to groom her. But he loses patience and he takes over. It's really important we acknowledge Tamar's courage and her righteousness in this moment because she stands up to him and says, what kind of a fool are you in all of Israel? You would be considered the biggest fool of ever. And the shame that I would be dealing with is absolutely unspeakable. He says, no, this cannot happen. It would destroy me. And yet, he uses force. He overwhelms her. He takes control. He overpowers her. And he rapes her. He takes from her without her consent. And in one, this one horrible and violent moment, her future is destroyed as far as her culture is concerned. See, now no one will marry her, not even her rapist. 
And as a woman alone, her future is not worth contemplating. Even then, Tamar stands up for herself. She calls Amnon out. Sadly, no one else will. Even that servant, who perhaps could have risen at that moment, an invisible, silent person who might have been a source of life for Tamar, blindly obeys the abuser. Tamar is shut out. No one will stand with her now. Christians, we need to stand with victims of abuse. Thankfully, we know that there is a healing path. We know that God has it for us. And the scripture teaches us that by the wounds of Jesus Christ, we receive healing. That's what's been true for me. We have to touch on these last few moments in the story here. You can see the devastation that Tamar experiences. She tears this beautiful multicolored robe. And uh, scholars liken this to what Joseph had. You know how that multi many colored coat of Joseph's was his sign of favor? This robe she had was a sign of favor. And she flees Amnon's house and says, this isn't worth wearing. I don't deserve this anymore. She shreds it because she has been shredded herself. She is utterly betrayed. She wails. She weeps. Something very deep inside of her comes out, and it's a lament of the horrendous, despicable betrayal of her whole family. And so I would remind you that abuse is about betrayal. Every victim of any kind of abuse feels deep and abiding betrayal. Betrayal that prevents us from trusting, that prevents us from living, really, a very normal life. Those who ha should have been looking out for Tamar should have been concerned with her well-being or sleep at the wheel. And that's often the case for many who have been abused. It's tragic that Amnon's lust suddenly turns to hatred. But I think that's what happens when it comes to sexual sin, isn't it? Most sex addicts have a, just an absolute problem with self-loathing. And the irony is that many victims have the same problem. Because Amnon actually now becomes his own victim. His life is ruined too. When Tamar runs away and encounters her brother Absalom, who's supposed to be the good brother, but actually as we read ahead in scripture, we know Absalom is really, he's not all that exemplary either. I don't know about you, but I want Absalom to take Tamar in his arms and to hold her and to quench her sobs and to be there for her as a healthy family member. I want him to say, we're going to make it all right. In fact, where is that Amnon? I'm going to go bust his chops right now. But Absalom does nothing. In fact, he says what is often said to victims, what we referred to in the video, just get over it. Just get over it. You make such a big deal like this changed your life. Just get over it. Move on. Put it in the past. Well, anyone who is a victim, anyone who has suffered from abuse knows that is not so easy to do. And then tragically, David does the same thing. So the final point I just want to remind you here is that when family fails to act in healthy ways, 
when a system, when a church, when any community fails to act in healthy ways, sin is compounded exponentially. It goes from bad to worse to worse. The nth power. And soon we begin accepting the unthinkable. The very fabric of our families are threatened. When communities are not healthy, our society is not healthy. But our church can change this pattern. We can change this pattern by staying informed about abuse and violence. By calling it out where and when we see it. See, I understand this ugly story. And if you'll bear with me for just a few more moments. There are so many parallels in this story to my story. See, I grew up in this typical, somewhat typical post-World War II family. We looked great from the outside. My dad was climbing the corporate ladder. My mom was doing bridge club and those other things you did out here in the western suburbs in the 50s and 60s and 70s. It all looked really good. But my dad had served in every major theater in World War II, and I think he saw some pretty horrible things. He had his own family of origin issues. My mom had hers. And they met and were married in Heidelberg, Germany. They came home married from the war. And with all the other vets, they got busy rebuilding America, right? Yay, we had a war. So now we're recovering from the Great Depression. I know what happened. Sadly, my dad did not deal with his stuff. And he became a very high-functioning alcoholic. He wasn't the kind of alcoholic that put the lampshade on his head or that raged through the house and beat people up or screamed and yelled. He was the kind of alcoholic who went to bed. But that meant he was absent. He was absent at every major important moment in my life when I needed him. Meanwhile, mom was his enabler. Mom was, well, mom was dealing with her own stuff. She was raised by, raised by a hodgepodge of household help and grandparents and family friends. And I have no idea the horrendous abuse that she must have experienced. She never shared it with me. Oh, maybe a story or two here or there, but only when it was a funny story. But usually those were tragic. Mom and Dad settled down. They had two sons in pretty rapid fire, Bill and Jim. I wanted that daughter, so after about five years, I came along. And I have to say that my dad was very distracted. He was dealing with his own stuff. He was climbing the corporate ladder. He was traveling a lot. My mom was just not capable of dealing with two active boys and then a new baby. And so my, my brothers, believe it or not, were sent away to boarding school when they were in the second and fourth grade. And I wish I could say to you that I remember those fondly as moments of being closer and having special moments with my mom, but I have no memory of that. She became more and more overwhelmed, and uh, she became very verbally abusive, emotionally abusive. She would go days without talking to me as a teenager. Meanwhile, my brother Jim, as he grew older, developed, that's the middle brother, he developed a just very bizarre, prurient interest. Oh, there was certainly pornography in our home, it was sort of a manly kind of a thing, kind of like the Mad Men three martini lunch and the cocktails after work and before dinner. It's just what you did when you were this kind of person. And that's the climate that I grew up in. I was exposed to that pornography and tougher stuff than just the playboys under the bed. I was exposed to the ugly stuff my brothers were hiding in the crawl space at a very young age. 
thought it was wrong, felt bad, but I really didn't know because nobody was minding the store there and telling me, taking care of me, watching out. And what this all led to was that Jim began to sexually abuse me at a fairly young age until I really reached adolescence and he moved on from our home. And I have to say that I am so sorry for that experience. And yet, like some abusers who get to the point, this point in healing and recovery, I'm grateful for the wounds and the scars. I'm grateful for the privilege of, of seeing how powerful the healing of Jesus Christ really is in my life. I still struggle with a lot of things. I still struggle with trusting. I still struggle with standing here and letting you guys know, yeah, this is really who I am. And so today, I just want to remind you that if you have experienced anything similar to this story, and of course your story is your own story, it's not Tamar's, it's not mine, there is help and healing in Jesus Christ. Not something that necessarily happens like that. It's much more of a journey. And I do want to say to you, Scott and I served churches all over the United States, Colorado, Kansas City, Greater Boston, 17 years in Tucson, now five years here in Naperville. And never once did we walk into one of those churches and find a group that said, come on, honey, let us give you a hug. Come, let us talk to you. Let's heal together. Let us pray for you. The only time I had that was when I started it, and that's really not a very good way to do it because I wasn't very far on my healing journey. But if just one of those churches had had that group for persons to heal and to heal in a healthy and a safe and a sound and a wise and a godly and a biblical way. What a difference that it would have made. How much easier my crazy, circuitous journey of healing would have been. And I'm really sad to say that the first time I did break silence in our church in Tucson and shared with a small group of women that I was a survivor of sexual abuse, no one spoke to me. Not then, not since. Other people seem to be able to do that for some reason because I was their ministry person. I was Scott's spouse. I was there. They didn't know what to say. I guess we in ministry are supposed to be perfect. What do you think? We're supposed to be flawless and have no problems and no evil and no darkness lurking in our background. So I just want to encourage you today Take some step, some step as a church. I know you have people here who are very concerned. You have people who want Newcom to address domestic violence and abuse. We can create safe sanctuaries and healing communities. This is a healing community. This community has healed people of all kinds of things may be a new adventure for you. This is our calling as the people of God, that we stand with the victims, that we call out healing and hope, that we support those who are doing the same. You can do this, Newcom. You can build this Newcom with survivors and their advocates. I know that you can. Psalm 34, 17. The Lord hears his people when they call to him. 
or help. He rescues them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He rescues those whose spirits are crushed. That's what abuse does to you. The righteous person faces many troubles, but the Lord comes to rescue each time. For the Lord protects the bones of the righteous. Not one of them is broken. Thanks be to God for this powerful and mighty hope. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, Father, Son, and Spirit, three in one, how wonderful you are. Thank you for the horrid story of the rape of Tamar in your holy word. Thank you that it enables us to look squarely in the face and see a family failing to be what they should be and do what they should do. Now, Lord God, I want to pray for this family here, this church family, and for every family represented within it that wholeness and healing and righteousness and help would come. That those who have been victimized would know that you do not condemn them They are not responsible for this heinous sin. But you love them desperately and dearly. You call to them. You gather them up. You pull them into your arms. You pull us into your arms. You stroke our heads and you say, right, come and be healed. Thank you, God, for your word, for your truth, power of your spirit. In Jesus' name.